I was talking to a friend this week, and he said if he had to pick a sermon title for this Sunday, it would be, How Shall We Live on Wednesday? Psalm 54 is a great answer to that question. How shall we live on Wednesday? We shall live as those whose hope and help is in the name of the Lord. That's exactly what it means to be a Christian. And I love what John said last week, that we don't get overtly political here in a partisan way, because then we could middle, whittle you all down to the people who thought just like us, and that would be nice, but then we wouldn't have a church. Nor would it work, because we have a diversity of opinion, indeed, among our own elders. Christians who, in good conscience, don't all believe the exact same thing, but who are all united in Christ, which is why, as John said, it actually takes more courage to stick to the gospel. So he said last week, we don't get overly political. Well, I'm going to tell you something else this week, that every Sunday when you come here, every Sunday when we are gathered, this is actually the most political moment of your week every week from now until Jesus comes back. And I'm going to tell you why. With the help of my friend, Peter Lightheart and this wonderful little book, Against Christianity, a provocative title, he's a Christian theologian. And he sets the stage of a play with several characters, Peter, John, and Paul. They go to see a religious consultant in Jerusalem because Christianity, this new sect of Judaism called the way, is beginning to expand. So why not get some help with your marketing? The year is sometime in the first century. The scene is a conference room at Barnes Marketing Consultants, Jerusalem office. The characters are George Barnes. that's a playoff of George Barna, who's a popular Christian church consultant in our own day, and the three apostles. Barnes consulting a parchment. I understand, gentlemen, that you want to start what we in the business call a new religious movement, or NERM for short. Is that right? John, I suppose so. Barnes. well, I should tell you that right now the market is pretty flooded. There are more religions on offer today than you could even imagine. And honestly, being from the East doesn't give you any advantage. Lots of folks are coming from Persia and further East, and they're spilling into Asia as far as Rome. Maybe you should consider another line of business. Peter, but we have the truth. Those other religions serve false gods. And the living God has commissioned us to take the good news to not some, but all men and women. Barnes, sure, sure, Peter, I understand, but I'm a consultant, and I want to make sure that you know what you're getting into, full disclosure and all that. We don't want to end up with some sort of messy religious lawsuit at the end of this thing, do we? Anyway, the first thing we do in this kind of situation is to scope out the market, see who the competition is, and find our niche to be most effective. In the next few pages, they go through a variety of options. Barnes asked the disciples, so are you starting a home church? Well, we are kind of a home. We're God's house and his people, but we're to go outside of our home and spread the news. Okay, not a home church. What about a client cult, sort of a religion, where people come to you on Monday to get a blessing for their meeting with their boss on Tuesday? No, we're not a client cult. God is sovereign over all, all things. Ah, then perhaps a mystery religion, Barnes says. You know, one of those ones with the, the funny hats and the handshakes and, you know, you work your way up the rung and only certain people can be in. Are you one of those? Not at all, they say. There's no mystery to it. What Jesus did, he did in public for all to see. 
Well, then perhaps a private religion where you need to pay to join. It's not private, it's public. And finally, they get to this idea of civic religions. The kind that don't just speak into what we do on Sundays, but all of our lives, every day, throughout the week. So that as we eat and drink, whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And as Barnas is hearing all this from the disciples, and as he's listening, befuddled, the Apostle John gets to this statement. By the way, this didn't really happen. John says, sure, but even as we're talking about public religions and civic religions, don't forget emperor worship. Since Augustus, it has been on the spread everywhere. He's making all the subjects of Rome bow the knee to him as a god. It's bestial. We intend to attack that too. Barnus, excuse me? Did you just mention the imperial cult? That's right, says John. Barnus, you mean you're intending to compete with the emperor, the imperial cult, Paul? Yes, we're sent to proclaim that there's another king. One, Jesus, who is the Christ. And we preach that there's actually another empire, the kingdom of God, which is the only kingdom that can bring true peace on earth, not just the temporary truce that Rome forces on its people. Resistance to Rome and all its false and idolatrous claims is actually pretty central to what we're doing. Barnes, now quivering, you're talking about another king. Do you understand what that means? The imperial cult is backed by the full weight of the military power and prestige of Rome itself. I mean, it's not like you could just take on Rome and win. And then the three say in unison, why not? Barnes, now frazzled and full of fear, gentlemen, I am very sorry. Uh, I can't help you. You have completely misunderstood what we're doing here. Uh, this is no nern at all. Uh, I don't think you're starting a new religion. You're doing something else entirely. I'm merely a religious consultant, not a political revolutionary. I'm afraid that we won't be able to work together. And quickly he gathered his scrolls and ran from the room so as not to be seen with these traitors. While the apostle shrugged and headed off to the temple to preach about Jesus. And that is why every Sunday when we gather here, we come to celebrate that there is indeed a new polis, a new city-state, a new way of being human, a new recreation that is breaking in from heaven to earth. And that is the identity, that is the story that defines us all. So Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 6, the government shall be on his shoulders, that is, King Jesus. That's our baseline, that's our hope, and it's our entry point into Psalm 54. Because Psalm 54 is really honest about something. As great as that story sounds, we still face the difficulties of the day. You know that Christians aren't supposed to go just run to the top of the hill and meditate till you die and hide from everything? Nor are we supposed to walk out into the public sphere and start yelling at everyone and shaming them and slapping them across the face with their 90-pound Bibles and our big words like deacon. Instead, we are supposed to be in the world and not of it, as servants, humble, lowly, like Jesus, our master, having our differences, fighting for the truth, but not hobby-horsing any particular justice issues, caring about all of those issues, as those are all things that Jesus will set right 
when his kingdom fully comes. Enter David, a man. Perhaps he was a pretty good looking man. I don't know, by some of the paintings of David, you think he was a decent looking guy. He was strong, he could wield a sword. At the same time, he could wield a guitar. He would have been the talk of the town in any youth group. But like us, David, the man, finds himself unable to rely on all of those strengths and in another difficult situation. That's the backdrop for Psalm 54, the Ziphites, these insolent men. And in some ways, it's worse than the trial of Psalm 52. Remember Doeg, the Edomite, that foreigner who sidled up to the power of Saul so that he could you know, try to partake in Saul's glory and killed the priests at Nob? In so many ways, the story is worse because the betrayal is deeper, and you'll see why. But I wonder about betrayal, the kind of betrayal that leads us to lament. Psalm 54 is a lament. Perhaps in our current climate, news cycle notwithstanding, you feel betrayed. You feel betrayed by leaders. You feel let down by promises. You feel disgusted with those who have said they would help, but left you time and time again high and dry. Perhaps you see younger people as not keeping their end of the bargain, or older people as those who refuse to listen. Perhaps what you have expected in life has left you unsatisfied. Perhaps you feel betrayed. Now these things are outside of us, but deeper still are the ones that are near to us and within us. The challenges in our own homes, marriages, relationships, children, grandchildren, the things that really keep you up at night with tears on your pillow. Last night I got a text from a friend that's in my pastor cohort. He's an Anglican pastor up in Seattle, and he asked me and our five other friends if we would pray, pray for a couple in his church, a couple that for the last nine months has been rejoicing and awaiting a new baby. They went to the hospital last night and there was no heartbeat. And I woke up, unfortunately, to the worst of all possible texts this morning. And that is that this little baby had gone to be with Jesus. She was given a name and yet she would still need to be birthed. There's no news that's worse than that news, in my opinion. And so lament isn't abstract to us. Lament isn't just out there, just, you know, hypothetical. Lament is near, as God is near, to the pain that you know and feel and continue to deal with. Psalm 54 is David as vulnerable and desperate. The warrior poet king brought to the end of himself, deeply in need, and showing us that in that need, it's actually hard to trust. It's not hard to know the right Bible answer, is it? You guys all know the right Christian answer. I know you do. But to really trust in those moments is a challenge when we feel we are near despair. And yet, in this psalm, David shows us a path a path from near despair to liberation. A path from being rocked and broken by the challenges around us to resting in the arms of a redeemer. Where is it? Simply put, David says, my help is in the name of the Lord. The Lord is my helper. 
That is what is certain. That's where my confidence lies. That is what I've got to cling to. My help is in the name of the Lord. And I think this psalm gives us three ways. You know, on the eve of some big moments in our country, in our city, in our world, perhaps in your own life, three ways to have this help. Even, no, even especially in our hardest stuff. To have this help, the first thing we need to do is join with David and pray hard. Point one, pray hard. Pray honestly. Pray in a way that's real. Oh God, save me. I mean, I wish we could have heard David pray this as he was surrounded by his mighty men and hiding from Saul. Crying out to the sky, tears coming down his face. This is not an academic exercise. And so our lament, our need, our prayer, it begins with honesty before God, even as we're under threat. Pray hard. Well, why do we need to pray hard? Well, first of all, because we all have scary and personal reasons to do so. We're not unfamiliar with the kind of trouble that David is facing here, as he is pursued by unfaithful and wicked men. The context is helpful. Who are these Ziphites, you may wonder? And it's interesting, because the betrayal of the Ziphites, as I said, is worse than that of Doeg the Edomite. He was a foreigner. That could be expected. But the Ziphites are men of David's own tribe, the tribe of Judah. And I know we live in America and, you know, rugged individualism and John Wayne, but try to put yourself back into the ancient Near East, where to be given up, to be ratted out by, by men from your own tribe, there would have been no greater betrayal or transgression. So we find that they are children of the covenant, children of Israel, but they're acting like Gentiles. The Ziphites are opportunists. Saul is still king. David is not. David is running. David is insurrection. Saul has power. So let's get ourselves aligned with Saul. And maybe he'll give us more grain, or he'll give us more land, or he'll give us more army. And all of this is happening in, in spite of the fact that in a few chapters before this, David actually saved one of their own border towns from the onslaught of the Philistines. So here we find David in 1 Samuel 23 to 26, pursued, alone, and exhausted. I'd say at this moment he's feeling pretty salty. I know some men, some good friends that are in salt groups, sad, angry, lonely, tired. It's good for men to be in these kind of groups and talk about what they're really thinking and feeling and be pointed to Jesus who cares. He's sad. Saul pursues. He can't fix it. He's angry. God has made promises. Where are you, Lord? He's lonely. He just feels alone. And man, I think that is one of the devil's greatest tactics against us. You're alone. The stuff you deal with, it's just you, you weirdo. Nobody else in this church who looks good is dealing with that kind of stuff. You're the only one. And he's tired. Folks, by the time we get to this, this story in David's life, he, he's been running for a long time. I mean, the, the adrenaline has been going for a good long while. He is exhausted. His heaviness leads him to prayer. Pray hard. And what does he pray? Well, he prays a personal and desperate personal cry. Notice, oh God, times two. Oh God, oh God. 
Now, there's a variety of names he, he could have used to call upon the Most High, but this one in particular translated is a, a very personal name. It's not capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. It's Elohim. It's God near and God in relationship. And then he asks for four things. Save me, vindicate me, hear me, and listen to me. When I first read this psalm, it reminded me of that great song by the Beatles, Help. You guys know that song? Anyone here know the Beatles? You've heard of them? Yeah? All right. Don't worry, because I have an illustration coming up that you have not heard. So we'll take this one. Help, I need somebody. Not just anybody. I mean, this is David. He, he's truly been brought to a place where only God can save him. And so one thing I want us to see in the first stanza here, one beautiful thing is that we can come to God like this. I want you to consider that, that, that all the other tribes of the ancient Near East would have had no category for the king to be this weak and vulnerable in public to cry out to God in this way in such a personal and needy way. This last Wednesday in our prayer meeting, we, we read some of Colossians 3. One of my favorite verses is Colossians 3.3. 3. Paul says to the Colossians, you are now hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means, child of God? It means whatever's on your heart, whatever's heavy, no, no matter how salty you are, Sad, angry, lonely, tired. You can come. Because when God looks down upon you, he, he doesn't wag his finger in shame. You know, shape up or ship out, buddy. And make your bed while you're at it. God looks down and says, you're hidden in my son. And my son's work, it is finished. He bled and he died and he, he rose again so that you could be hidden in him. So that you can come to me. So that you could come to me, come what may in your own life. The second thing we see in the stanza that I think is pretty important is that David prays that God would vindicate him. Now, this is, a, this is a call to God to be a righteous judge. This word vindicate, it's, it's a legal term. And so it begs the question to us who are readers, well, David, what's your cause? What's your cause? You want God to vindicate you, to make you righteous, to set you right, to justify you. Upon what grounds, David? And I read a quote this week from Eugene Peterson, who's a wonderful Bible scholar, who said, the grounds for all of David's cries are that the Psalms are really about God, about his holiness and his perfection. The, the Psalms lift us up from our navel gazing and from the minutia of our circumstances. They lift us up from the trees so that we can see the reality of the forest, that God is our helper and he is in control. And to that I say, yes, and, yes, and. Because the Psalms are about God, but David pleading his case before a righteous judge also reminds us that in the Psalms, God cares about you personally, by name, and the specificity of your own needs. Now, how, how does this happen? David shows us. He doesn't cry out for his accomplishments. He doesn't give God a list of his pedigree and what he's done to deserve the hope that he might be vindicated. Instead, he tells us that it comes from the name of the Lord and his might. David, in his prayer, calls upon God's character and God's conduct. He doesn't look to his circumstances. If he looked to his circumstances, they would be pretty bleak. He's alone. He's on the run. He's being pursued. It's 500 men versus the entire Israelite army. 
the probability isn't good here. But rather than look outward, he looks to God. He calls upon God's covenant, God's promises, because he knows that God's character is that which cannot break its promises, and God's conduct is the story of his faithfulness to his people throughout history. So 2020 has not been a great year. Some of us are ready for New Year's Eve right now. And Jesus helped with 2021. But I think a question we need to ask from this prayer is how has God been faithful to you? This might be a really good one to do at lunch today with your friends or your family or whatever you do at six feet. (laughs) Whoever you hang out with today, how has God been faithful to you? You've prayed hard. You've you've seen some real obstacles. You've been through some real challenges. You've known the salty taste of tears on your own face. How has God been faithful to you? You see, in this prayer, David is strong, but he has been reduced to desperation. And that brings him to the only question that matters. What is certain? Oh God, oh God, would you save me? What is certain? So the second point of the psalm answers that. First, pray hard. Second, look down. Now you think I might say, look up, right? Look up to the heavens and behold, God. No, look down. Why? Look to the one who is the upholder of your life. Some scholars say that the image that's conjured up here is that image of her and Aaron holding up the arms of Moses. Do you remember? God is the upholder of your life. And one commentator even said it could sound like this really minimizes God. I mean, does God really uphold people? Does he really walk with people? Does he really strengthen their arms? And the response to that is beautifully found in the gospel because not only is God transcendent and powerful, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and every tribe and tongue and nation will bow their knee to him. He is imminent. He is near. He cares. He is close. He is with us. In Jesus, his Son, by his Spirit, God is the upholder of my life. And so in David's lament, in his praying hard, he meets his helper. The encouragement of the psalm is to meet your helper, to know that your help is in the name of the Lord. Because I don't need to tell us that this world is full of false and halfway helpers, isn't it? Promise makers who aren't promise keepers. It reminded me this week of that great sitcom, The Office. Has anyone here watched The Office? God bless you. If you haven't, there's always time to get right with Jesus. No, I'm kidding. I'll do my best to describe it, though. It's sort of a, you know, it's a Seinfeld for millennials, I'll say. Takes place in an office environment and all the shenanigans. And it's really known for being a a pretty cringeworthy show. I mean, just like, oh, stuff happens that is intended to make you feel uncomfortable. And the, the king of cringe is the boss himself, Michael Scott. And some scholars of the office, and yes, those exist because I found some this week, would agree that possibly the cringiest of all episodes is one entitled Scott's Tots. Scott's Tots is a cringe fest. The, the episode starts off with him trying to avoid something on his calendar because he has begun the Michael Scott Foundation. And his former secretary, Pam, you know, does one of these, oh no, I can't believe that thing's still around. Basically, 10 years prior, Michael Scott, in his arrogance, 
thought that in 10 years, as the regional manager of a paper company, he would be a millionaire. And so he visited a school in an underserved part of his town, and he promised an entire class of third graders that if they would graduate high school, he would pay for their college education. Well, 10 years of being a paper manager uh, didn't quite earn the millions he expected, and he could no longer avoid having to go to the school and apologize. The problem is the second he gets there, the kids greet him with a song and a dance, and they're so happy to see Mr. Scott, the one, the helper, the savior. They're all going to get to go to college for free now because of him. And he's sitting there at the student's desk, his face just shrinking into nothing, and it's so uncomfortable to watch. It is true cringe. Finally, he stands up and says, well, I have one good thing to tell you and one bad thing. The good thing is I really care about you guys. Applause. The bad thing is I can't send you all to college. And one by one, the kids stand up, they're yelling. The teachers, the principals are yelling. And he goes, but wait, but wait, there's one thing I can do. If you're going to go to college, at the very least, you need a laptop. And he rolls a big suitcase to the front of the room. And you could see on the face of the kids, well, okay, I mean, if this guy's not going to send us to college, at least we get a laptop. And he unzips the top of the suitcase and goes, and every kid who needs a laptop needs laptop batteries. That's what he had to offer these kiddos. And I mean, it is truly painful to watch. I mean, it's, it's hilarious in a very I'm embarrassed sort of way. Why? Why is it so cringeworthy? It's cringeworthy because a helper made promises to the needy and then broke those promises. And we know in our heart of hearts that is not how it is supposed to be. Here's the good news of look down to see the upholder of your life. God is not like that. God is not like that. God is not the one who is going to make promises to help you and uphold you and save you from your enemies, and then show up in your time of need with laptop batteries. God is not like that. That's the first thing we see in that second stanza, that God is a helper to David, his love overflowing in his power. The second thing we see is God's justice. And this is good news for us, folks, because there are many things we cannot control, but this we know. That the arrogant and the prideful will get theirs. I think the NIV actually translates this verse better. Um, and the verse in question is that he will return the evil to my enemies, verse 5. Because the NIV translates it that evil will recoil upon itself. And isn't this the truth? That God has created the heavens and the earth. The earth runs according to his will. And in the end, he will make all things new and bring justice to our land. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, look, good and evil are not locked in some sort of eternal co-equal battle. Christians, please realize we are not dualists. No. God has already won. The evil is already recoiling as the kingdom of God breaks in to each and every nation. As James tells us, even the demons know this and shudder. So the defeat of evil is sure, even though not much else really is. And I think the question of look down to see the helper and upholder of your life is, do we believe that? 
Have you seen it in your own life? Have you seen God help you? Even when you were at your lowest point, even when you could no longer wrestle with God, all you could do was cling and he kept you to himself because he loves you. Do we believe that? And if we do, folks, we can't get jaded. No matter what happens this next week, listen up. It may not be people in this church, but it will be your friends and your neighbors. There are going to be people in tears. Some are going to be crying because the world is over, and some are going to be crying because they think Jesus came back. And we don't get either of those options. We don't get to be jaded if it's not what we want. We don't get to separate ourselves from people that are frustrating and annoying and wrong, and we've told them so because they're made in the image of God. Nor, if we get what we want, do we, need to get, do we get to go out and gloat? I'm not saying you can't be happy or sad. Of course you can. But making those things ultimate is no option for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because God is our helper, and his justice will prevail. This brings us to David's conclusion. David's conclusion in the psalm, pray hard, look down, is this third point. Get fit. If this is true, if Jesus Christ has come, died for our sins, atoned for us, taken upon himself the wrath of God, and risen from the dead so that even in our saltiest trials, we can know that our help is in the name of the Lord, then it's time to exercise. It's time for us to burn some Jesus calories as a church. And I want you and me to think about how we can do this this week. As there's anxiety and fear and scarcity and stock markets and hunkering down, and I got to make sure I have enough, I want us to do some crazy stuff. I want us to be like David, whose lament leads to liberation in the promises of God, which leads to the liberality of two things, a free will offering and thanks. This free will offering, we're not sure what it is, but it's above and beyond what was required. It's free will because it's not required. There's no vow attached to it. David sees that he's been guilty, he's a sinner, that God has saved him by grace, and now he cannot help but overflow in gratitude. Folks, is our, is our friends and our neighbors are wigged out by everything this week? What can we, how, what kind of free will offering can we do? I want us to get crazy. I, I don't want us to be about scarcity. Let's give more. Give more money. Give more time. Give more talent. Give more of what we have in ways that make people go, I mean, I'm not saying to tell everybody about it, but in ways that make folks go, that doesn't make sense. Why aren't you afraid like me? Psalm 54, so appropriate for our own day, shows us that lament, which leads to liberation, gives us a real opportunity in a time like ours. A real opportunity to say, no, we will not be constrained by our circumstances. We will be generous with the love and the justice of God as he has been for us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, delight is incomplete until it is expressed. David is delighting in the Lord. He is my helper in times of trouble. My brokenness, weakness, and lament has led me to my Redeemer. But delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It remains unborn until it is shared. Man, when you love something, a beautiful piece of art, an amazing meal at a restaurant, what do you do? We talk about it. We share about it. We do what happens in the psalm to David. He goes from talking to God to telling everybody around him what God has done. What an opportunity we have this next week 
with all the feelings that will be permeating, permeating our land, to be those who respond with thanks and free will offerings, who allow our love and affection for Christ to be expressed in ways that are surprising to people because it doesn't make sense. And this is exactly what David himself does. A chapter later, he's in a cave and Saul walks in to relieve himself. Do you remember this story? Saul has to use the banyo. So he goes into the cave and David is close enough to cut a little, little piece off of his robe. And his men whisper in David's ear, get him, kill him, now's the time. But because of Psalm 40, 54, he doesn't have to do that. His help is in the name of the Lord. He can do what we are called to do in Christ. What Jesus himself has already done for us. Return betrayal for blessing. Because truly our help, it's not in chariots. It's not in princes. Our help alone is in the name of the Lord. And come what may in your life, whether it's personal or provincial, come what may this week, Psalm 54 lays the question before us. Will you trust your helper who alone can help you? Will you pray hard and real and honest and vulnerable and with tears? Will you look down to see the one who lifts you up? Will you exercise the grace of God even when everybody else is on the couch eating potato chips too afraid to go outside? Our help is in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what good news it is to know you are our helper. I think of the church and all the seasons she's been through, watching this Martin Luther documentary and the time of the Reformation. They thought, okay, the end times have come. We're in it. That was 500 years ago. And I think a lot of those guys knew their Bibles better than we do. Lord, we don't know. We don't know when the end will come. We do know that every tribe and tongue and nation must hear the gospel first. We do know that we can come to you with honesty in our lament and need. We do know that you are our helper and that you are just. And that if our hope is in you, you will never turn us away. And that true enemies of you will meet their ruin. And because of those things, Lord, we don't have to praise you. We want to. We want to be the loudest voice in the room because you have been faithful to us. And so, Father, I pray you would meet us at this table with these promises that as we eat and drink right now, it would be a physical, tangible reminder, not only that our help is in the name of the Lord, but, Lord, you have been our helper in the name of your Son. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.